Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ray Christian. After a couple of weeks, I could peel his ass cheeks back like it was a banana. <laughs> that and more. But before that, we want to tell you about a podcast called Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio goes anywhere and everywhere to discover how food and cooking are changing the lives of people around the world. You'll hear stories about $1,300 melons in Japan, the hottest chili pepper in the world, how computers are designing chocolate chip cookies, and the secret history of peanut butter. There's a great episode that goes behind the scenes with a zoo chef, another where Jose Andre shares his best stories. Milk Street Radio is hosted by Christopher Kimball with a rotating cast of contributors, including Sarah Moulton, Adam Gopnip from The New Yorker, Dan Pashman from The Sporkful, and Alex, French cooking guy, no, French guy cooking, from YouTube. Take a listen at 177milkstreet.com slash radio, or just search your podcast app for Milk Street Radio. Now, you're about to hear four stories you've never heard before on this episode of Risk, but every week we put out another one over at patreon.com slash risk. This week, a story by Leah Lamar, and it sounds a little bit like this. She was like, yeah, I got a nose job, and it changed my whole life. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, well, what did it look like before? And she was like, like yours. <laughs> so don't miss out. Get on over there to patreon.com slash risk. Become a member for various, you know, you choose the amount you'd like to give per month, and there's all sorts of opportunities to get other kinds of content, our check-ins, interviews with people on the staff and storytellers, hours and hours and hours of bonus stories. You know, there are over 20 people who work for us here at Risk, and they're working for very little, and they're stretched very, very thin. We're always very nervous about our bottom line here. We work ourselves ragged and it's because we believe so deeply in this work that we do, creating this podcast, creating these live shows, recording these radio style stories, doing workshops for people in all sorts of situations, reaching out to people all over the world and, and courting them to, you know, teaching them how they might share their story on the show. Risk is not. <laughs> it is not like your typical independent podcast. You know, uh, uh, there, there are podcasts you might be used to listening to on NPR or Slate or, you know, produced by the New York Times or, or any of these other big money entities that, you know, may have lots and lots of resources and, uh, you know, bandwidth to do all kinds of things. Risk, we are independent and, you know, kind of make it all happen on our own, and it is month by month, year to year, a challenge, but a challenge that we truly love and believe in. So it means so much to us that our fans support us over at patreon.com slash risk. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. Oh, shoot. Who is this behind me now? Erg. This is Atomic Drum Assembly behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Trade-Offs 
Now stay tuned because at the very end of the episode, I'll tell you everything you need to know about our upcoming live shows in Reno, Cleveland, New Haven, Dallas, Durham, uh, Asheville, Baltimore, New York, and Los Angeles, and more to come. And I'm having so much fun meeting some of you. If you go to kevinallison.com, I'm doing these one-on-one consultations with people about storytelling, about creativity, podcasting, producing live shows, working on stories for people's career purposes, and even just checking in with people about mentoring, about life coaching sorts of things around, for example, kink and BDSM or their creative journey. If you go to kevinallison.com, Everything you need to know is there to set up a meeting with me where you can see and hear me online and we can meet for a half hour or an hour, do some coaching around your story or your project or anything else you might have in mind. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from Jane Wallace, a story she first shared in Los Angeles a little while back. But before that, we're going to hear a story from Ray Christian, who is one of our all-time favorites, like a member of the family here at Risk. This was recorded a while back in Los Angeles, too, and we were having some audio trouble that night. But we figured, you know, it was such a fun telling of the story. Screw it. If there's a little bit of noise in the background, who cares? (laughs) We can hear Ray well enough. His own podcast is called What's Ray Saying? And it's a treasure. And you can find him at drraychristian.com. Here he is now with a story we call Gorillas in the Night. When I was a soldier in the Army, I had been trained and conditioned and socialized to be loyal to the people under me and to inspire loyalty in them because in combat, the only thing that people fear is death. And the only way to inspire people to be loyal when you're in peacetime is to show or demonstrate to them that you care about their personal life, the thing that's going on with them by asking them questions. When they tell you there's some kind of problem, you respond to that if they call you on the phone. So with that in mind, one night I received this phone call and before I answered it, I would have no idea that I was about to enter into something, rather a conspiracy that had the potential to have me court-martialed or put in prison. I received this panicky phone call from one of my team leaders. He says to me on the phone, hey, Sarge, we have a problem out here. One of the guys has been hurt. I say, hurt? What happened to him? Why aren't you taking him to the hospital? What are you calling me on the phone for? What exactly is the problem? He says, Sarge, one of the guys has been shot. Shot? Take him to the damn hospital. What the hell are you calling me on the phone for? He says, Sarge, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, you really need to come out here. So I still ask him again, why in the hell aren't you taking him to the hospital? Why in the hell are you calling me on the phone? 
Sarge, it's really, really complicated. You really need to come out here. So I find myself driving out to one of these rural areas. I reach this place. There's this trail out in the country. And a couple of guys standing around, they're smoking cigarettes, drinking beer. I ask them, what the hell happened? They kind of mumble under their breath something and none. So I push past them. I run up the steps of this trailer. I snatch over the screen door. And what I see inside is so outrageous, so over the top, so crazy, so insane. I almost can't explain it to you. I got to give you some background on who these guys were. Now, see, at that time, young soldiers were in the habit of uh, getting together and they would uh, rent an old trailer or something out in the countryside, mostly for the purpose of getting together and engaging in uh, uh, misadventure, horseplay, just fucking around, generally. And it usually involved alcohol or nudity, women, sometimes no women, sometimes just nudity, sometimes just alcohol. <laughs> well, as an excuse to go out and see what these guys are doing, we used to come up with this thing called a health and welfare inspection. It's just an excuse to go out and see what people are doing, how they're living, what's going on with them. And I had heard this rumor that the guys were involved in cockfighting. Are you familiar with cockfighting? Are you you're from L.A.? Are you familiar with that? Would you say that's pretty hideous, evil, nasty, filthy act? Well, you can understand how shocked I was when I went out there and I saw these dudes with their pants down. <laughs> chasing each other with their own cocks in their hand. <laughs> one night, they had come back from this Halloween party and uh, one of them, Sergeant Brown, was wearing this real cheap gorilla suit. After the party, they're standing out one of these convenience stores uh, waiting uh, for each other, wanting to get some cigarettes, something else to drink. So while he's out there standing around, people going in and out the store, they see this guy outside in this gorilla suit, and it scares them. You know, people are surprised, they're shocked. There's a gorilla in the park, like, whoa, what's going on? They think this is funny, and they remember. And being geniuses, they decide one night, you know what would be real funny? If we put on a gorilla suit, and went out to one of these rural roads and scared the shit out some of them local people. Just walk up and down the highway, you know, going, you know. So what the geniuses did is they drove out to one of these rural areas. Sergeant Brown puts on a gorilla suit. He's walking up and down the highway. People are passing by, slamming on brakes, you know, going, what the fuck, turn around, going back the other direction. And unbeknownst to these guys, the sheriff's department was already starting to receive some phone calls about a Bigfoot sighting out on one of the highway. <laughs> so at some point, a bunch of good old boys passed them in a pickup truck. And they turned around and came back and stuck a shotgun out the window and shot Brown in his ass. Bunch of bird pellets. So now the geniuses are in panic mode. What do we do? They don't take him to the hospital. They put him in the back of the truck. They drive him to the trailer, and they call me on the phone. So now, here I am at the trailer. I pulled over the screen door. 
here's what I see when I walk inside. Sergeant Brown is laying on the couch. He's got nothing on the top. On the bottom, he's got these cheap-ass gorilla pants and these gorilla feet. (laughs) And he's sipping a beer and smoking a cigarette, and he just looks at me, and he goes, Hey, Sarge. (laughs) And his ass looks terrible. They're they're just hundreds of little pellets, gnarly-looking little red pellets from the top of his back, his buttocks inside his butt cheeks down the bottom of his legs and I'm looking at this and I'm going like oh wow damn this is awful I try to pull the pants back a little bit and the bird shot starts popping out of his butt I know right then this is way over my head so I decide I'm going to call one of the medics that I know on the phone I called this guy, I said, look, man, do me a favor. Do you think you could come out here, uh, bring your aid bag, take a look at this guy? And he says right away, hell no. I'm not coming out there. Take his ass to the hospital. So now I got a guilt. I said, what kind of damn soldier are you, man? You don't care about us? You're not loyal? We can't depend on you? You won't come out here? What are you doing? What if we were in combat? He said, okay, damn, okay, I'm coming out. (laughs) He gets out there. He's got his aid bag. He cleans off his butt some. He removes some of the pellets. And he says to me, I think he's going to be okay, Sarge, but one of those pellets may have penetrated his colon. I can't tell for sure. But he could die from that. And he would have to go to the hospital. And I said, well, what, what do you think we should do now? He says, I'm going to call the medical sergeant on the phone. I said, yeah, good idea, call him. <laughs> so I'm standing beside him. He calls the medical sergeant on the phone. And I can hear him explain it. But I could also hear the medical sergeant in the background say, hell no. <laughs> I'm not coming there. You take his ass to the hospital. What's the matter with you guys? So I snatched the phone out of his hand and I said, let me talk to him. Hey, man, what kind of damn soldier are you? We can't depend on you. You can't depend on us. What would you do if we were in combat? Why won't you come out here? Why can't you help us? He says, okay, okay, okay. I'm coming out. He gets out there and the medical sergeant pretty much does the same thing that the medic does. He cleans his buttocks a little bit more. He removes a few more pellets. But he makes the same assessment. He says, I think he's going to be okay, but some of those pellets may have penetrated his colon. Of course, he could die from that. I said, well, you can't tell for sure? He says, no, I don't have the stuff that I need to check for sure. I don't know. What do you think we should do? He says, well, if you bring him to the aid station in the morning, say that he has hemorrhoids. It'll give us the excuse to get out the things we need to at least have a look and we can go from there. Yeah, great idea. So in the morning, I take them to the aid station, but all the medics in the aid station, when they hear that there's a guy who showed up with hemorrhoids, they get all excited, you know, because this is training. They don't get an opportunity to touch hemorrhoids, you know, it's mostly just bullets and stuff like that. So everybody's excited about it. There's fucking hemorrhoids showing up. All the medics are there, all the medical sergeants. Everybody wants to touch the hemorrhoids for the training opportunity. 
The medical sergeant approaches me and pulls me outside and say, you need to get him out here right away. Take him away from here. You cannot come back. I said, what am I supposed to do now? He said, you're just going to have to check for infection the old-fashioned way. What is the old-fashioned way? You don't have to look. Look for what? Look for any redness, streaking, foul-smelling discharge coming from his anus. Well, what will that tell me? It will tell you that he has a damn infection. We're all in trouble because he's going to have to go to the hospital and we'll have to just all fall on our swords. We're fucked. Well, in the beginning, I could hardly place my hands on his buttocks. It's awkward. But after a couple of weeks and some good natural lighting, I could peel his ass cheeks back like it was a banana. So this goes on for like every day for several months. You know, I see him, he sees me, we don't even have to talk. You know, it's natural. What he does, eventually he does heal up, everything is okay, it's over, he gets reassigned somewhere. I don't see the guy for a couple of years. One day I see him on another base and I go, oh damn, dude, you know, how's your injury? He says, man, why don't you see for yourself? Hell, I, I hadn't seen him in a while, and just it was just natural. As soon as he dropped, he dropped his pants, and I immediately just dropped in my position, you know. And, and that was cool, except at the same time we did that, this private walked in the bathroom. <laughs> he just turned around and walked out. Every time this kid saw me on base after that, he would just smile. So, if you're walking around in the woods somewhere and you think that you see Bigfoot, it could be just, you know, somebody lost or something or misguided. Or if you should see a man sniffing another man's ass, <laughs> maybe they just haven't seen each other in a while. walking down the street and uh, eh, there's a medium amount of people and I see this adorable gentleman older than me shorter than me looking at me and approaching me he's got these bottle cap glasses on but I remember his eyes to be small and like almost turtle-esque and he seems to very much want to tell me something. And so I'm like, oh, hello, sir. And he's like, Meh. I'm like, oh, and I think, well, okay. He's maybe needs a minute. He's like, me, me. And he, 
you know, is putting his kind of reaching out for my arm and I'm like, all right, you know, I'm listening. Uh-huh. You can tell me and me and my I'm like, oh shit, like this guy's having a hard time getting it out. He must have a stutter. You know, so I'm like, you know, no, and I just buckle down and I was raised to have very good manners. My parents are immigrants. They taught me, you know, like, especially to your elders, to always be polite and patient and just accommodating. So I'm like, yes, tell me. It's like, me and ma, ma, me and ma. I'm like, maybe he's in trouble. Jesus Christ. Like, oh, right, ma, yeah, you and your, you and your, me and ma, me and ma. Me and my fam. Me and my fam. I'm like, all right, we're getting somewhere. I got me and my fam. He's probably gonna say me and my family. I'm like, uh huh. Okay, me and my fam. Me and my. Me and my. Me and my fam. Me and my fam. Me and my. Me and I'm like. Oh, uh-huh, yes, sir, yes. You and your fam, you and your family. Me and my family. Like, like, I'm just, like, starting to go nuts. Like, I'm like, oh, God, just fucking, oh, my God, dude. Me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my family. Oh, me and my family. Oh, just fucking say it. Me and my family. Me and my family. Me and my Oh, and I'm like in my head, I'm just like, just fucking say it. And then, I wake up and I'm like, oh shit, I was sleeping. And I like look over and my, my sweetheart is snoring next to me. He's like, and I just start laughing. I'm just like, God, his snore got into my dream and was the voice of the man. One of the best dream interpretations I've ever had, real life into sleep. fascinated with sex. I always have been. As a kid, my friends and I watched Mean Girls just for the Regina George makeout scene and subsequent condom line. We watched Titanic just to see Kate Winslet naked. And we learned all the words to Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back. I couldn't wait to fool around with boys. The makeouts and moans I saw on TV were sexy. Well, I was a little too young for sexy. But whatever they were and whatever I felt while watching them was something I wanted very badly for myself. Becoming a teen met my own picture-perfect sex scene, and I couldn't wait. And then came 14. Max was my first fumbly makeout, but I superimposed the movies of yesteryear upon the experience. We met at a party. He looked at me. So, want to go outside? Uh, Sure. It was very passionate. (laughs) We made out, and when he wasn't pawing at my breasts, his hands were 
trailing down my spine, creating a tingle so intense, the anticipation of what could happen next is something I still think about to this day. I had arrived. Or at least my sexuality had. <laughs> Coincidentally, around the same time as the arrival of my sexuality came the arrival of severe anxiety and depression. <laughs> I cried all the time, from the time I got home from school uh, to the time I went to bed, about everything. The test I missed two questions on in math, the grease stain I got on my shirt during lunch, the fact that my dad hadn't been home in days, uh, the fear of my house burning down in the middle of the night, being in my head was fucking exhausting. Everything made me enraged or anxious or suicidal and extremely concerned. My mother took me to a psychiatrist and I was put on my first antidepressant, Prozac. Like slipping into a pool, the kiss of the drug cooled um, my anxiety. I learned to become more operational. I could sleep through the night without night terrors. My mood swings were less frequent. My parents, at least, were more at ease. Everything just felt kind of numb, which was much better than the alternative. It became a new normal, a new medicated normal. But the numbness seemed to be physical as well. When I started hooking up with boys, I realized I wasn't feeling the excitement that I had been expecting. I wasn't really feeling anything at all. Boys' hands felt like dead, unlubricated fish. I just wanted to feel anything when they touched me. Max from age 14 was a distant memory and the best one I had of being turned on. <sighs> Medicated Jane had a problem and she didn't know what was wrong. At 17, I fell hard for a boy. I really wanted to orgasm with him. More than that, I wanted to feel anything when he stroked me. A little bit more experienced than I, he was patient and kind and wanted to pleasure me. Perhaps in a self-serving, trying to prove his sexual prowess kind of way, but that didn't matter to me at the time. Did you come? Brent would ask. Uh, no. <laughs> but it was still good. I tried to be as nice to him as possible so as to not bruise his fragile male ego. But I started to really hate myself. What was wrong with me? I've done everything right. I feel completely comfortable with this person, and I still can't enjoy it. I hoped the problem was physical, something with an easy fix. So I went crying to my gynecologist, a comforting grandmotherly-like woman named Beth. Look, Beth, I pleaded. Something is seriously wrong with my vagina. <laughs> Beth went down there, poked and prodded a little bit, came back up after a minute or two, and said to me, well, you're in perfect health. It must all be in your head. Have you seen a psychiatrist? Oh, poor innocent Beth. Of course I'd seen a psychiatrist. That's who brought me here. This interaction left me more confused and heartbroken than I'd been before. I really felt hopeless. It wasn't until college that a doctor could explain this to me, how something was just off. She told me that antidepressants can dampen sexual feelings. The uh, medication I've been at that point for a couple of years, Effexor, um, causes sexual dysfunction in 40% of users. Not only was this normal, but it was extremely common. This was amazing news. There was a physical answer to my problem. I had been correct. Validation is such an incredible feeling. <laughs> but pretty soon, the truth of the matter sunk in. I have no control over the side effects of my medication and maybe never will. 
Could I self-induce orgasms? Sure. Uh, I got my first vibrator when I was 18. I took it to my dorm room, turned it on the highest setting it could go, went at it while constantly checking the clock to make sure my unsuspecting roommate didn't come back uh, to take a quick nap after class or anything. Um, And finally, after about an hour, I had the most earth-shattering orgasm imaginable. It was thrilling, but terribly (laughs) time-consuming. And I was disheartened to know that no man could match the speed and furious vibration needed to make this happen. I assume. Sex is fucking tough. On antidepressants, it's a fucking nightmare. One college summer, I decided this was going to be my, be my summer of climax. I would be working at my childhood summer camp as the camp photographer, and eligible bachelors were plentiful. In order to test my theory that antidepressants were part of my problem, I went off of them. The immediate pain from the withdrawal was bad. Uh, every time I moved my eyeballs, pain would just sear through every inch of my head. Um, I constantly felt like I was going to faint, and everything made me very emotional. Even looking at a photo of a baby rabbit could really send me into a blubbering tailspin. But after a few weeks of tapering off, I tried my vibrator, and I orgasmed in minutes. This was a fantastic sign. The first night up at camp, I locked eyes with a boy who I had known growing up but didn't know well because he was a couple of years older than me. And yeah, I had found my target. We got a flirtation going, and pretty soon we were spending every spare minute we had together. We ate lunch together. We um, stood next to each other at the flagpole. We're at camp, remember? And at night, we would drive up to the lake and stand, um, sit under the stars together. I found I was really falling for this guy. And not only was I falling for Eli, but I became extremely infatuated with him. I used all of my anxious energy to obsess. I really thought I'd never been happier. But what goes up must come down. Um, Pretty quickly, we started having sex. And the first night he ever put his hands down my pants, I could feel it. His touch was electric. I was elated. And soon after that, we started having sex all the time. An orgasm over here, an orgasm over there. It was great, until it wasn't. One day I woke up and I had a cloud looming over me. It was a familiar feeling of dread and darkness, of lethargy and pain. It overtook me and I couldn't fight back. That night with Eli, I didn't have the same desire to be there, but I stayed quiet. We started having sex, and I just couldn't make eye contact with him. And he rolled me over, so I was on top of him, and when I finally looked at him, I felt all of my anxiety, all of my terror, all of my insecurities just looking back up at me. You're fat, you're stupid, you're unlovable, you're fucked up. All of these thoughts just racing through my mind. Panicked, I rolled off of him, and I told him he needed to leave now, and I lay there in despair alone. And of course, to Eli, this would have been incredibly terrifying and confusing because he had done nothing wrong and I just treated him as though he was a monster out of nowhere. So the next day, um, I went to apologize and he blew me off. He blew me off for a full week. I was devastated. When I finally talked to him, uh, he told me he couldn't do it anymore. Why? I asked. 
you said you cared about me, that you were having a good time. Well, yeah, but I didn't know you were... Didn't know I was what? You didn't know I was crazy? Is that what you were going to say? You didn't know I was crazy? Um, okay, that wasn't what I was going to say. But it, it was what he was going to say, and I understood because I felt really crazy in that moment. From there, I spiraled into a deep depression. Um, I lost 20 pounds in the month before I was set to go back to school because I stopped eating. I convinced myself that I was terrible and damaged and broken. From there, I knew really my only option was to go back on my antidepressants, but I struggled because it felt like it was going to take something so big away from me, and I just didn't know if that could happen. So much of my self-worth had been wrapped up in my sexuality from such a young age, and without it, I would be forever lost. But begrudgingly, I made the decision to go back on my medication, and I immediately felt enormous mental relief. And I could function again. I knew this was an experiment I could not do in the future. It had been a decision to be mentally well and sexually dysfunctional or sexually functional and out of my fucking mind. And I decided to choose my mental health um, over my sexuality. The thing I have to come to terms with is that my self-worth is tied up in something that is so external. And I feel like it will be hard to figure out what my own self-worth is as well as learn how to trust my body. It also seems like it will be hard to find a partner who is willing to work through all of this with me. But I'm willing to put in the work in order to have my next great orgasm. And in the meantime, I still have my vibrator. Thanks. This is Risk. This is Belle and Sebastian behind me now. And we just heard from Jane Wallace, who you can find on Instagram at Jane Wallace. Now, before that, we heard one of those less than three minutes and 30 seconds long anecdotes. I've had a couple of these on the show so far that I made myself and invited you, the Risk fans, to be sending in your own and that one came from Akisandra Anagnostopoulos. Oh my God. <laughs> we call it me and my fam, of course. So if you listen back to the recent episodes, the one called Excess and the one called Close Calls, those are the other two examples so far of these short anecdotes 
around about three minutes and 30 seconds long or shorter that we're asking people to send in to us. You can send them directly to me at kevin at risk-show.com. And you can also write to me and ask about any advice about how to record yourself and so on. Now, our final story on this week's episode comes from Mary Eden. This was recorded the last time that Risk was in Washington, D.C., and Mary had never shared a true story on stage before anywhere else. We love so much. We love our newcomers. We have had so many just so many memorable stories that have appeared on the podcast by people who were doing this for the very first time. That's why we're always encouraging you to pitch us your stories if you go to risk-show.com slash submissions. But here is Mary Eden now, recorded at the Black Cat in Washington, D.C., with a story we call Sisters. She wants me Hi. So I have two little sisters, and my youngest sister is complicated. She is a very unusual person. She has what I would describe as kind of autistic tendencies. She doesn't really look at you when she speaks. She's very socially awkward. She describes feelings as frightening. When Jor was a kid, she was diagnosed as having borderline low IQ, which meant she really struggled when she was in school. However, she did manage to graduate from college but it took her eight years going full-time, and we suspect that my father may have helped because he was friends with the dean. My middle sister is a social worker, and she thinks Jordan might suffer from borderline personality disorder. Jordan lies compulsively. She regularly changes jobs, apartments, friends, Therapists. When anyone ever gets close to her, she pulls away. And these are hallmarks of a personality disorder. But the thing about Jordan is she's warm and friendly and generous. And people are drawn to her. They really adore her. As an adult, the way this is kind of manifested is with issues of self-care. And I didn't really understand that until she moved in with me when she moved to D.C., I started to understand what my parents had been complaining about for all these years. Jora doesn't brush her hair. She doesn't brush her teeth. She doesn't shower or do her laundry. She won't pay her bills, even when she has the money to pay them. She doesn't go to the dentist, and she doesn't go to the doctor. Eventually, my father kind of worked himself up into a frenzy about her teeth, and he, he comes up with a plan. He puts her on a plane, and he flies her to California where he lives. He gives her a couple of Ativan, he puts her in the car, and he drives her to a dentist in Tijuana, who, (laughs) I know, I was not in support of this plan, for the record. (laughs) But the dentist has, he is gonna sedate Jordan and fix her whole mouth. 10 hours later, he has to wake her up, because it's a long time to be under, and he's only managed to do half of her mouth. 
my dad puts my hysterically sobbing sister back on a plane and sends her back to me in D.C. And, yeah, I know. He's like, fix the rest of her mouth. I'm like, ah. So I... I think I'm being very responsible. I find a dentist that takes her insurance, and I give her the number. But Jordan never calls. Jordan is in her 30s, so I don't really know what else to do. She moves out of my house, but she regularly comes over for dinner, for parties. And she comes over on the 4th of July, and I notice that her stomach looks large. And... I am a little concerned. She looks like she's pregnant. A few months before that, my six-year-old had asked me, Mommy, how are babies made? And I explain it to her, and she's like, Ew, that's disgusting. Is there a less gross way to do that? (laughs) But I tell Jordan the story, and she has the exact same reaction. Jordan doesn't have sex. She snuggles. Adults have sex. She doesn't. And this is well known in my family. So I know she's not pregnant. So I am concerned about why everything else on her looks the same, but her stomach is getting larger. I kind of lose track of her around this time. My own life is, is a mess. My marriage is falling apart. I'm caring for my three little kids by myself. And I'm not seeing Jordan as frequently. But every time I see her, her stomach has gotten larger and larger. And I am getting more and more worried about her. So I call my mom, and we discuss this extensively. And my mom confronts Jordan, and Jordan's like, I went to a doctor, and the doctor said I'm fine. We both know this is a lie, but we don't want to confront her. So I talked to my dad. He's a man of action. I figure he'll do something. But he says, I saw Jordan recently. She looks great, never better. I'm like, okay. So I call my middle sister, and I, I'm confident now she is going to help me. She's going to tell me what to do. But Danielle says, you shouldn't comment on people's bodies like that. That's so rude. She thinks I'm fat-shaming Jordan, not getting desperately worried about how big she's getting in the middle. I don't see Jordan for a couple of weeks. And the next time I see her, we're going out to dinner, and she has doubled, quadrupled in size She's so large in her stomach that she can't fit behind the booth at the restaurant we go to. But the rest of her body is completely emaciated. You can see every bone in her arm, every sinew in her neck. Her face is ashen. She looks like a skull. And I'm looking at her and All of a sudden, I realize, holy shit, she is dying. This is an emergency. I have to do something. I can't keep calling my parents. She needs help right now. So I tell Jordan, we need to go to the hospital. And she looks at me right in the eye for once, and she says, why? I... I'm 
horrified that I have let her get to this point. And I am just shaking with shame and fear as we're driving to the hospital. I can barely look at her. I feel so bad. I have to half drag, half carry her into the emergency room. She thought I was going to take her home, even though I kept telling her we were going to the hospital. She is weeping hysterically and wearing a pair of these bright blue pants that have elephants down the side and they have ripped at the crotch. And I guess she can't see because her stomach is so large. And you can see a pair of dirty underwear through the hole and they take her back almost immediately. They run initial tests and scans and give her something to calm her down and she falls asleep and it looks more like death than rest. While she's sleeping, the nurse tells me the doctor is ready to speak to me and I walk down this hall and he is showing me images on a computer and I can't understand what he is saying to me until through the fog I hear it appears to be ovarian cancer it looks advanced terminal call your family and tell them to come immediately I run out of the ER into the night and I am screaming into the phone at my parents and my sister and they are all by her bedside with me the next night. We sit with Jordan until it's time for her to go in for surgery. And as they wheel her away, we're just in shock that this has happened. We can't believe that it's going on, except as we're watching, you can see the giant tumor under the hospital sheet and it is just a physical manifestation of our inaction we wait and wait and finally the surgeon comes out to speak with us and he looks exhausted but there's almost a spring in his step as he's walking towards us your sister your daughter he tells us had a tumor the size of a human head It was surrounded by 26 pounds of fluid. It destroyed her uterus, her ovaries, and was wrapped around her bowel. We had to remove six inches of her bowel. She's lost a significant amount of blood, but is doing well. And it appears that the tumor was not cancer. She had been misdiagnosed in the ER. But she was deathly ill from growing this gigantic tumor that was left untreated for so long. While she's in the hospital, Danielle and I, my middle sister, take the lead on caring for her. My dad goes back to California. He doesn't think he can help, and my mom can't cause her any more pain. Danielle and I link arms with Jor and pull her into a sitting position, and she screams at us that we are hurting her. We help her walk to the bathroom, and she weeps at us, begging us to put her back in bed. We hold her up while she goes to the bathroom. We wipe her. We wipe her blood off the floor so she doesn't have to see it. 
We link arms with her and walk her up and down the halls of the oncology ward, trying to get her better so that she can go home. And she screams at us that we're hurting her and why don't we just leave her alone? Towards the end of her hospital stay, Jordan's boss comes to visit. And I realized pretty quickly she's there to see me. Well, I'm walking her to the elevators. She turns to me and she says, you need to take guardianship of your sister. She almost died. You need to be an adult and take care of her. And I, I didn't disagree. I watched her almost die. And I had actually already spoken to a friend of mine that was a lawyer, but he said, it's no go. Legally, she's an adult. She can grow a tumor. She can refuse treatment. She can die if that's what she wants to do. I couldn't force Jordan to get help that she didn't want. She just wanted to go home. And in my own conscience and under the law, I don't believe I had a right to force her to do anything, even if I wanted to. She has slowly gone back to her own life, and as messed up as people may think it is from the outside, it is her life. And I started to understand at least a little what had happened. Jordan needs help, but she refuses it. She will face another crisis, and we will try to help her. We'll try to save her. But until she wants to save herself, there's only so much we can do. When Jordan was released from the hospital, Danielle and I went for a long run together just to shake off the frustration and the exhaustion from trying to care for someone who had been so angry at us for trying to help her. And... It was just such a bizarre experience, and we really couldn't make sense of it. But we knew that we had each other, and that was enough. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Real Estate Behind Me Now, and we just heard from Mary Eden, 
Hey, you know, one of the storytellers we have featured the most often on the podcast over the years is David Crabb, who is now the producer and host of the Risk Live Show in Los Angeles and a faculty member at the Story Studio. Well, if you are a member at patreon.com slash risk, you can hear the latest check-in that I uploaded. It's an interview between myself and David Crabb all about storytelling. And it sounds like this. I'll have a student sometimes and they'll be like, I want to tell some stories about, uh, I taught American Sign Language to primates in Uganda for three years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, that's so crazy. No one would... No one would understand what the and I'm like no 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 that's that's your crazy special thing that's like your glittering lure in the water oh yeah and I'm yeah the, the thing that you're afraid people won't understand and, yeah and yeah and that's yeah. gonna make me be like what what is it like to be with like a 400 pound gorilla right but mm-hmm. then the trick is remembering that you had that fear at the top that your experience mm-hmm. was too niche too outside of the norm so what do you do well if you do it right it's like a magic trick and all of a sudden the thing that seems so outside your experience teaching sign language to apes, eating someone's poop, all of a sudden that story is a mirror. And you're like, mm. oh my God, that's exactly how I feel about yes. uh, anal sex. That's exactly how I feel about um, teaching kids in church. That's exactly how I feel. And for me, it all comes down to that feeling. So those are the kinds of conversations you can hear at patreon.com risk if you become a member today. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget, we also teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. We have an enormous faculty made up of a lot of the people who coach the stories for the Risk podcast. We have all sorts of opportunities to meet instructors online, meet with entire groups of people online, or just download videos to watch in your own time. There's in-person workshops in New York, Los Angeles, and Minneapolis. There's corporate workshops that we teach all the time through thestorystudio.org. Folks, Today's the day. Take a risk.
Me and my flam. Me and my flam. Me and my, me and my, me and my flam. Me and my flam. Me and my flam. Me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my flam.